Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the Democratic Convention and explore whether the Bernie diehards will deliver us into the arms of the Trump Imperium or slink away slowly into the night. Our old friend Megan Dom calls in from New York, where she is relocated to talk about the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd and about the idea of the op-ed column in general. Is it obsolete? Should it be put to bed finally, or do we need more of them? Joining me are my usual co-hosts, Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Hi, Seth. Hello, Tom. Hey, are you going to ask me about something I don't... I was thinking about it, Tom. Yeah. Tell me something I don't know. Bowling is fun. Did you guys go bowling? Last night. And? It's fun. It was fun. Did the gutters have guards? No. If only. No, no. No, that'd be nice. It would be more fun if they did. (laughs) Bowling is fun. I got nothing with bowling. (laughs) That's what I was going for. Right. We are recording this on a Tuesday. It will air on a Thursday. And the first night of the Democratic National Convention was Monday, which is last night. Michelle Obama killed it. Sarah Silverman was very funny. Elizabeth Warren was very good. Lori, what was the highlight for you last night? For me, the highlight was when Michelle Obama, of course, her whole speech was just incandescent and such a relief after the speeches of the the prior week. But when she said, when they go low, we go high, I thought that was a great summation of the difference between the two conventions. And I think the uplift that I got from Michelle Obama's speech was, you know, the polar opposite of all that anger that we saw spewing out of people, Rudy Giuliani, especially ridiculous last week. Well, of course, we we had our own version of it with Bernie you know, the kind of get off my lawn old guy ranting at, at, at us uh, as well. I mean, and, you know, his his version is a version of what's wrong with the country that's much closer to my own sense of what's wrong with the country. But emotionally, he was the, he was the same. He had the same kind of message. And was that the high point of the evening? For no, you? no, no, no. The high point was, was Michelle Obama. I mean, that was just, that, that, was, that was a great speech. And the moment when she said, I wake up every morning in a house built by slaves. I mean, that's a, that's going to go down in, you know, like, like the cross of gold speech as, a, as one of the great moments in American oratory. One of the things that's been interesting to watch while all this stuff has gone on, Trump's ascent, the idea of extinction events, the overheated coverage in the media, has been the way comedians have responded to this. And last night, I think one of the highlights was was Sarah Silverman when she got on stage with Al Franken and ad-libbed that line to the Bernie supporters about how they were being ridiculous yeah, well, um, of course, comedians, you know, thrive on anger on, in all kinds of ways. Um, but but I saw something on Samantha Bee's show on Monday night that I thought was unusual and a very interesting response to that anger. That was, uh, it was a black female reporter named Ashley Black, who is one of the only black female writers on late night comedy. She went into the RNC and she started interviewing people about what they think Black Lives Matters means but she actually engaged people in a discussion. And like a woman said to her kind of angrily, you know, I don't know whether to say black or African-American. It makes me feel very uncomfortable, like it's her fault. And she says, well, why don't you just ask me what I prefer? 
And the woman says, oh, oh, okay, well, what do you prefer? And she said, I prefer black. And the woman's like, oh, okay. And you could see the woman, her brain kind of, you know, ratcheting around and and actually feeling kind of good about herself. Like, well, I just did something that made me feel kind of good. Uh, as opposed to all that anger, which does make you a one feel good until, you know, the next morning where you kind of feel bad. Um, so I think that the RNC is is not offering any kind of long-term feel-good thing, which is why I am optimistic about this election. The biggest threat to the country to me right now is the collapse of the Republican Party into utter anger and incoherence. And until that's addressed in some systemic and overarching way, we're going to continue to hobble down the road to whatever crazy place we're headed right now. Well, you've seen the stuff about um, Trump uh, adopting Nixon's rhetoric of yeah. law and order. And 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 in fact, and if you look at some of those ads in 1968, they sound remarkably similar to what Trump's doing now. So the, this kind of doom and gloom, uh, the, the, the country's falling apart and only I can save it, that has been a, a Republican message, you know, for a long time. And I do think it's a shame that the Democrats, or that at least the kind of progressive wing of the Democratic Party, can't find a message beyond hope. As I mentioned previously, we are recording this on a Tuesday. It will be airing on a Thursday, and Hillary will be delivering her acceptance speech tonight for the nomination of the Democratic Party of the United States of America. Lori. Are you optimistic? Will she deliver those emotional high notes that Tom is asking for? Well, here's my hope. Remember the election of 2008 and how we all felt when Obama was elected and we were so proud of ourselves and our country. And I remember feeling that a little bit when Geraldine Ferraro was almost vice president. And I feel like we've been robbed of this, the feeling that we should have for this historical moment. It's unbelievable that a woman is going to i mean it's just it's a it's a great great moment but it's been so muddied that it's been almost impossible to feel that for me anyway and that's what i'm hoping for i'm hoping to that if i to feel that feeling tom how about you what are you expecting well, tonight well i did like that in uh, in michelle obama's speech as well the, the the idea that this is something that is going to have an impact on young girls a profound impact if when when Hillary wins, and so that you know that I, and I think that that is something that we that we can be proud of. It's kind of like when the fact that nobody talked about the fact that we had two major Republican candidates who were Latino um, in the in this last round, and uh, and people just didn't talk about it because it was like it was just not what we had in mind when we thought wrong about the first, yeah. Although the people talked very rarely about Bernie's Jewishness. Why do you think that was? Well, Bernie played it down. I think Bernie's an atheist and he's, he's non-identified at this point and it certainly wasn't going to help him in this political climate. You know, I have worried that, I, I, I have to say I am, I'm Jewish so I can say this, but I worried that I was a little bit anti-Semitic because I just didn't like Bernie. There was something about him. I was just like, why do people like this guy? I just find him Ooh, I don't want to hear him. He reminds you of your Uncle Lou, who you avoid every year at Thanksgiving. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> put a, put a, a Harpo Marx horn at that moment. Womp, 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 womp. We are doing a non-scientific poll of the people in our studio who are younger than we are today, which is everybody but the three of us. Coming up will be Gabe Greenland, Mary Alexa Kavanaugh, and Ernesto Orleano. Stay tuned for that. 
The novelist Margaret Wappler was in the studio last week to discuss her book, Neon Green, and we used the words spoiler and spoiler alert interchangeably, Tom and Lori. Yeah, I feel bad about that because I've since learned that that's not correct. I learned that it's not correct, but I never learned why it's not correct. Joining us on the mic to tell us exactly why it is not correct is Gabe Greenland, with whom I share a few strands of DNA. Gabe, would you please enlighten us? A spoiler alert warns that a spoiler is coming. So the spoiler alert and the spoiler are two different things. So I could say, spoiler alert, Darth Vader is Luke's father. If you guys didn't know that, I'm sorry that I just spoiled what? the movie. <laughs> See, the, this is why this is why you need to have the proper terminology. You can get confusing. You could ruin, you know, a franchise for somebody. But that itself, that fact, is the spoiler. Right. The spoiler alert is me saying, "Get ready for me to drop this knowledge bomb on you." That is maybe going to ruin the movie. So, so which one of us misused it the all, most? All of you guys, I think. Like, what? How do we do misuse it? Give us an example of that. Somebody said the aliens do something in the book. Is that a spoiler alert? I don't think it's a spoiler alert. You were right that it's not a spoiler alert, but... Oh, that was Seth that did that. <laughs> but, it, but it was a spoiler. That'd be a pretty haphazard spoiler alert if the alert itself contained the spoiler. It kind of defeats the purpose, if you ask me. What do you think about the Bernie voters? The Bernie voters? Oh, don't even get me started. Are you a Bernie voter? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> does uh, that make you unpopular in your age oh, group? Oh, yes, it really does. I get, uh, can I curse on the air? Yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of shit for not being a Bernie supporter. Having just graduated from a liberal arts college that I will keep nameless, you will find the burn victims at liberal arts colleges to be incredibly indoctrinated and closed-minded. And that's because you're a Trump supporter, right? (laughs) You know, when they hear me talking like that, they naturally assume. But you're not. I am not a Trump supporter. I'm with her, as they say. Also in the studio today is our czar of scheduling, Mary Alexa Cavanaugh, who we call Lexi. And we're doing an informal poll. Yes, an informal poll. It probably has the same margin of error as all the polls that we're reading now. It's two people, two respondents. So, Lexi, are you a Bernie supporter? I was definitely on that bandwagon. Um, But I, I was actually more like... Um, middle of the road than most of my peers at another like unnamed liberal arts college and I like experienced a lot of social alienation as well so it's been interesting but I am now of the opinion that anyone that is not with her is kind of supporting Trump and like and adding fuel to that fire so I um, I'm extremely frustrated with the masses that are like kind of boycotting democracy right now because they're mad. And I, yeah, so I've, it's been interesting, especially in my age group, because most of my peers are like overwhelmingly in support of Bernie, which I think is great, but now it's kind of. And they're not backing off. Yeah, it's, it's pretty overwhelming, actually. Um, I, I know very few people that have kind of, um, like back down. Lexi, thanks for getting on the mic. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Joining us now, our third guest on this roving poll that we're taking is our crack engineer, Ernesto Orleano. Ernesto, welcome to the show. Thank you. Ernesto, are you still in your 20s? Mm, not since last, no. Oh. Since the last two months. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm 30 birthday. now. He's still okay. qualified. So he's a, he's as a, as a little young, bit, little bit older than he's our a young former still. contestants. But the margin of error for our poll just went, you know, went, went way down. So now, now we're going to really know. Are you a Bernie bro? I don't support I, uh, either one of them. Very much against Trump, though. Did Bernie's campaign move you emotionally? No, neither one did. Ernesto, I have a question. You are. Argentinian American, you spent a lot of time in Argentina. That's does, right. does Trump feel familiar to you? Is that like a as as in Peron? <laughs> no. How, in what way is Peron he different? Had, was more double faced. So he's not like a South American dictator. No, he's more, much more, uh, you know, popular with the uh, lower classes and managed to uh, create an an image of. Uh, being libertarian when actually, you know, he was a uh, very much right wing. This you is know, and, and, yeah, about, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, they, with the, you know, he was a Nazi. And Trump only retweets Nazis. Who do you support at this point? Nobody. You know, I feel that uh, a lot of times, especially with people of my uh, age, they can swing one way or the other very easily by uh, just hearing very generalized uh, titles or ideas um, without knowing the specifics, and uh, I find that dangerous. All right, thanks for getting on the mic. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK. FM, Tom and Lori, anything you'd like to say before we go back to our regular programming? I have an idea. Let's call Megan Daw. Does anyone have her number? Uh, let me look. I think I have it here. Where are the smiles, the laughter and fun? Something is bugging. Hello. Hi, Megan. Hello. Megan Dom is the author of The Unspeakable, as well as other novels and works of nonfiction. She is currently a columnist for both the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times. Megan, welcome back to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you. Good to be here. Megan, are you the first person who's ever simultaneously been a columnist for both the LA Times and the New York Times? Well, I... I need to clarify that a little bit. I'm a columnist on the op-ed page of the Los Angeles Times, and uh, I am going to be writing a column about books in the New York Times book review, but only every eight weeks. Um, it's not, uh, it's just kind of like a little, little mini column. <laughs> so I don't, if I, I certainly would not be able to write like on the op-ed page of the New York Times and the LA Times simultaneously. All right, but so. I'm going to still introduce you as a columnist at both oh, Okay, okay. <laughs> you may have heard we're in the middle of a presidential election and the op-ed pages are bursting into flames all over the place. And I was reading a column by Maureen Dowd, who I've been reading since before she was a columnist, since she was a reporter for the New York Times. And I was very happy when they made her a columnist. And I thought, the beginning of her career as a columnist, I thought she was pretty terrific. And I thought the way she handled the Monica Lewinsky coverage, I made me kind of question my, my judgment at that point. I thought she was way over the top with Monica Lewinsky and Bill and Hillary Clinton. And my opinion of her has continued to go south over the last 20 years. And about a month ago, she wrote a column about Trump, which was the, the classic, on the other hand, 
kind of op-ed writing where, you know, there, there are certain people who think Trump is an extinction event, and I'm not sure that I'm one of those people, although I find him an execrable character. But Maureen Dowd took the stance in this column that he was entertaining and funny and maybe he said some outrageous things but isn't he kind of cute and i think he's been nice to her over the years and it reminded me of the way liz smith Mm. wrote about trump in the 80s where she would write things like oh i chided the handsome mogul i found that column really it was upsetting to me because i thought she was really missing the big picture with this guy and i love to get your global take on the way the New York Times op-ed page has been covering this election, and particularly the way Maureen Dowd has been covering it. Well, I think one of the things that happens, and this will come as no surprise to you, is that there are so many people saying so many different things at, at every second that, uh, you know, the, the, the mandate to have an original idea uh, is such that you end up kind of pulling things out of the air and sort of uh, playing devil's advocate to a degree that, um, you don't even really mean what you're saying. I mean, I, I don't know Maureen Dowd. I don't know what's in her head. I don't know uh, how much she's just, you know, playing or playing with us. I, I just think that we're in a strange moment for people who are professional journalists and, and professional opinion havers because we're, you know, everyone's in a, an opinion columnist in, in a way. So, I mean, I myself have have been faced with, you know, do I want to have a totally fresh take or do I want to say what I really think, which is what most people think in a lot of cases. And so it's hard to thread that needle. Let's back up for just a second. And, and I, I want to know, uh, Megan, who do you think are the great columnists in American journalistic history? Oh, in history? Yeah. Oh, I mean... <laughs> we, ha- we ask the big questions here. No, no, no. I mean, let me think about it. I mean, you know, I can tell you right now. Let me start... Let me. I actually, my favorite columnist uh, on the New York Times op-ed page is Ross Douthat, okay, the conservative. Uh-huh. I think, I don't agree with most of what he says, but I think the way he puts a column together uh, is really interesting and, and pretty literary and um, pretty uh, critical-minded and rigorous in his thinking um, and sort of artful in a way that, that you don't see in a lot of the others. Um, and so... Uh, I, I read him pretty regularly. I think Kareem Abdul-Dabar is a great columnist in Time Magazine. More people should read him. Should have him on. You heard, That's you heard it here first. Yeah, I didn't even no know he was joke. writing one. No, he writes, a, yeah. he writes a column. He writes about race. He writes, um, you know, about, about social issues in a really nuanced, uh, uh, sort of, you know, unreactionary, um, unpredictable way. Um, and he's really good. Really good columnist. He's been a guest on the show, actually. He's a very, very thoughtful guy. Yeah. Is that true? Are you just saying that, or has he actually been a guest? No, no, no. He has been a guest on the show. He it was. I went and interviewed him. We did a remote segment with him. Mm-hmm. You completely forget that he's one of the best players in the history of the NBA, and you think you're talking to just someone who's thought deeply about what's going yeah. on in the world today. Yeah. Megan, in 2016, do you think there are still gendered expectations for op-ed columnists? And if so, what are they? Well, I have a hard time answering this because I'm, I will cop to the fact that, you know, I write about gendered things. I mean, the fact is that I'm not as interested in international policy as I am in 
certain uh, domestic uh, social policies that affect women. And I, I, and I, I so I'm not going to say, oh, well, you know, they only put me on that stuff because I'm the chick columnist on the page. That's not true at all. Nobody ever tells me what to write. Nobody ever tells me not to write about a certain area. Um, I, I do think that there's uh, a kind of allergy uh, in some corners to women having opinions. I see, I certainly see women who are writing on the web, who are writing about women's issues, um, being savagely attacked on Twitter, on social media, in the comments. Um, I wonder if more than or in addition to it being a gendered thing, it might be a generational thing. Did you read Maureen Dowd's book called Are Men Necessary by any chance? Um, I, I believe I read m- much of it. I remember being very excited uh-huh. to read it and less mm-hmm. excited as I actually read it. After you read it, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was interesting that uh, her, her connection to Dorothy Parker, who uh, I think any witty woman, particularly single, possibly, obviously has a debt to, to Dorothy Parker. Yes, has a debt uh, possibly to alcoholic, Dorothy possibly Parker. In, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and Dorothy Parker, you know, was, she was uh, an icon and she was, had a very unfortunate, unhappy love life in that she was in love with Alan Campbell and she married him and he was a homosexual and an alcoholic and she became <laughs> an alcoholic and it's all very unhappy. And then I thought it was interesting how Dowd who quotes uh, Dorothy Parker all the time and obviously is a fan of hers, how she kind of made um, an icon out of herself for being this perpetually single woman right. who no man really wanted to marry because of her sharp tongue. Right. That could very well be true, but we don't know, you know. <laughs> but it's a, it's a certain arch- archetype of the, the witty woman, right? Yeah, and again, I think it's it's kind of an outmoded sensibility and model. It, it feels very 80s to me. Um, mm-hmm. that kind of, uh, you know, like big, you know, power suit, big shoulder pads, uh, you know, t- tough talking, swashbuckling broad that the guys can't deal with. I mean, I, I just mm-hmm. think that we've, we're not in that moment anymore. Um, I'm not sure uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm perpetually trying to define what moment we are in, uh, <laughs> In terms of in terms of gender and and uh, relationships and all that kind of stuff. The thing is, we can't really know because we're not going to be able to figure that out until twenty years from now. <laughs> you know what what we're you know what the, our gender issues are because we're in the midst of figuring them out. I'm glad that we got into Dorothy Parker because that was the prompt that I was going for with the question about the the great great uh, columnists in uh, in history. One of the things about Dorothy Parker, of course, is she's very, very funny. Right. And you um, uh, can be a, a very, very funny writer as well when you want to, whenever you want to be. And I understand, I, I've come to Maureen Dowd late. I've only been reading her uh, in the last couple of years. I understand that she used to be funny too. <laughs> Ouch. She, well, you she was are hilarious the funniest. in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, is is she is she still considered to be a, a, a funny person? I think she thinks she's funny, which is one of the things I find most irritating about her. I don't think she's been funny since the late nineties. See, but actually. I feel I, I it can't, for me it's such a David Letterman parallel because he just made me cringe for like the last twenty years. But obviously, oh, yeah, he was yeah, on the yeah, air. Yeah. I, I could be not everybody feels that way. Obviously, mm-hmm. comedy is subjective. 
and also has fashions. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, everything is, everything is. I mean, I guess, you know, so much of being funny, and and Dorothy Parker was a master of this, is being self-deprecating, you know, having a sense of Mm. humor about yourself. Um, And that's something that, uh, you know, some people do better than other That's people. That's true, but she could also be pretty, pretty vicious. Uh, I, I, one of my favorite reviews of hers is of a play, and the entire review was, "If you don't knit, bring a book." So <laughs> that that hurt the playwright for sure. You know, she did have a little bit of that superior New Yorker thing going on, which was very enjoyable. Right. I mean, I have to say that you know the the writers that influenced me were I read a lot of film criticism, okay, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, even when I was a teenager. So I wasn't, you know, I couldn't actually tell you who was writing columns, like, you know, in the 70s or 80s, you know, newspaper columns, but I do remember reading Pauline Kael in The New Yorker and just being completely mesmerized by that. And I remember reading, even more recently, I mean, I think like Anthony Lane as a, as a film critic is... An, an amazing essayist. Like, he's, he's writing about more than just the film. Um, and so I was actually sort of more interested in uh, arts criticism than in newspaper opinion writing. Um, and so that's maybe why I am less of a... I'm certainly not a wonk, you know, so I'm bringing this kind of other thread to it. But, Megan, does it occur to you that people might be reading you today the way you were reading those writers? <laughs> no. <laughs> um... <laughs> You know, I get a, I get so many emails from students, high school students, who will get an assignment, like their teacher will assign them over the semester. They have to pick a columnist and then, you know, follow their columns and take like four or five columns and, and write um, an analysis of the columns. And then sometimes they'll have to do um, an imitation of the, style of the column. Um, and I'm always amazed because... I'm amazed by a couple of things, but one of the things is that they say, um, you know, that they've read a bunch of columns and then they say, okay, well, can you tell me, I have to write this paper, so can you tell me, like, what are your themes, what do you write about, um, yeah. what are your what are your opinions? <laughs> oh, kids, kids today. <laughs> it's kind of like being on this show. And, but, um, <laughs> but, but then they write, and then, but then they write these, these, like, imitations of the column, which are just hilarious. I mean, it's so great, and they, you know, I, I'm horrible with parentheses. I use so many parentheses, and the reason for it is that I don't have any space. So, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. if I have to back up a point, I literally don't have enough room to write another sentence backing it up. So I've got to throw (laughs) a bunch of stuff in parentheses. So, so they will do that. Um, and, uh, that's, that's very, very funny to see. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously, it's great to know that, that people are reading it, but you know, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person like, I, I never think anyone sees my car when I'm, when I'm pulling out of a driveway. Like I, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that, you know, I exist half the time. So <laughs> You existed today and were kind enough to come on the show. Megan Dom, the author of The Unspeakable. Thanks for coming back to the LARP Radio Hour. Thank you. It's fun. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Megan Dom for phoning in. Thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience. Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. Thanks to the czar of scheduling, Mary Alexa Kavanaugh. Thanks to associate producer Jim Lane. Thanks to our editor, Gabe Greenland. Thanks to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studio. 
Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. Before I do the final sign-off, I want to say that we do not have a lot of reviews on iTunes, and it would be great if you're listening and you enjoy the show to go to iTunes, review it, give it a rating. It will add to our prominence on that site. We'll get more listeners, and if we get more listeners, we can do better programming for you. So please, if you get a chance... Can we thank people on air if they give us a rating? Yeah, let's do that. I think we can absolutely thank people on. Frankly, I think we can have them on the show. We can, we can, we can. Or and give them like a candy bar. <laughs> Something. <laughs>